0: hello and welcome to episode 52 of the figure podcast each episode we figure out people numbers and images of the past present and future so i'm gonna just go right in and let's begin, Sharp, with your recommendations of January. Yeah, got loads of recommendations. I'm
1: very happy that January is almost over. We are getting through this day by day. So, first one is a TED Talk by Tim Ferriss that I think you will mm. absolutely love, especially. Okay, Arthur, I've got my pen <laughs>
0: uh,
1: because it is around stoicism, which we've talked about. Previously on the podcast and he's reiterating the what it is fundamentally at its core rather than what we perceive it as quite often which is this not having any emotion like stiff upper lip kind of thing which is what I always think of when he talks about when anyone talks about stoicism and he takes it back to the root of the word which is actually around porch did you know this no so Yeah, this is, that's where the word comes from. It's around these conversations that you have with people on your porch and like observing the world going by. I love that. I know. The TED Talk is only 13 minutes and it's around fear setting as opposed to goal setting. And it's just very, very interesting to examine what you can control, what you can't control, and then just identifying it, writing it down, thinking about it critically. And it's just really interesting exercise to do, especially right now. And We have plenty of time to sit down and write
0: about things. Very much recommend it. What I like about stoicism is it's very much the core is sort of observing what you see and looking at the world for what it is. And that's almost perfect to say that at the beginning of this episode, because I'm someone who personally that gets so hyped in terms of, hyperbole and this person is this and I feel this way and actually what stoicism does it takes it back and just goes okay what is actually going on here what are the facts what can I control what can't I control and to not make something more or less than it is
1: absolutely so that's really good TED talk podcast wise I've actually been listening to a lot of music recently and I've been really enjoying it. I've been going through, Apple keeps on telling me off because my headphone volume is too loud. (laughs) It's so patronising. I go for long walks, listen to my music and albums on repeat are all by St. Raymond, who's great. Bears Den, got back into Mumford and Sons after quite a few years. That's always uplifting. Um, I can link the playlist if that's not (laughs) too...
0: presumption. Definitely. I know that <laughs> I can speak for many listeners and that linking playlists is always very valuable. <laughs>
1: uh, and then podcasts. So I haven't listened to very many, but fortunately with Fee and Jane, I've been enjoying the occasional dip into. And especially now that we don't have Jane Garvey on Women's Hour anymore, it's lovely to get your fix of Jane, um, along with Fee Glover, who's her co-host. And they are just absolutely hilarious. And it really reminds me of calling a kind of favorite aunt or godmother. And then you just have them chit-chatting away in your ear and just making brilliant observations. And it's just very comforting and lovely. And then the other one is something that I've been editing for my dad. It's called Imaginal Inspirations. And it's with transformative leaders, thinkers, philosophers, professors, and I interview him for the last episode, which will be coming up. I mean, the reason it's called Imaginal is because these are the cells that transform a caterpillar into a butterfly. I yeah. love that.
0: I didn't um, know that that's what they were called. Mm,
1: I mean, most of the people interviewed are in their 60s or 70s, sometimes 80s. And it's just really interesting to have those conversations of someone looking back on their life and then reflecting on it how about Thanks, you?
0: Char. Well I um, have some slightly more mainstream podcast recommendations which is fine as well even though that was an extremely thoughtful and intellectual uh, opening <laughs> our recommendation section. Um, so kicking off I discovered a podcast called Literally presented by Rob Lowe and uh, Rob Lowe is an actor. Apparently he was Harry Styles of his day to hear. Love that. Yeah, to hear Harry Styles referenced uh, in that regard. And apparently, so he's also a recovering addict and he talks a lot about his relationship with his wife. I think they've been married over 30 years. Anyway, great podcast, really thoughtful. Um, The two episodes that I really enjoyed were with Lisa Kudrow and Maria Shriver. Lisa Kudrow is an actor uh, best known for Phoebe on Friends, but she also created the show, Who Do You Think You Are?, which is just a fantastic and such an interesting show. And every time I watch it, I always think, oh, am I going to be interested in this person's history? And every time I always act. Next podcast, Sibling Revelry with Kate Hudson and Oliver Hudson. Kate Hudson is an actor. Um, Oliver Hudson is also an actor. They're they're siblings. And so they interview pairs of siblings. Shah, you'd love this. Um, This sounds amazing. It is. It's great. Um, they have such a good chemistry and they ask such interesting questions that you really relate to because because you're in a sibling pair yourself. I listened to Nikki and Paris Hilton, which was really interesting. Um, kind of as a reflective piece on the Paris Hilton documentary that came out uh, last year, which was also really interesting. Paris Hilton is a significant figure in the world of reality tv and sort of social media personalities because she was the original yeah and I find just her fascinating just what what drives her to do that and how it began and how she sort of created this monster in a way and it was kind of cool to hear her and her sister just talk about being sisters
1: whenever I think about Paris Hilton I always think about the early noughties and has she just really sums up so many elements of it and I can just see her in the you know the Alexander McQueen inspired very very low cut jeans and then the sort of flares and like the leather pointy boots and then this like skimpy top with her bag and everything's designer and she's like going into her clubs and I always also associate with her that with that song um from Paris to Berlin (laughs) (laughs) Which is a really great song. Still listen to that occasionally when we're doing some kind of throwback playlist.
0: (laughs) Yes. Have you watched the the Paris Hilton documentary? No, I haven't. Okay. It's very interesting because she suffered a lot of abuse when she was a teenager. It's quite harrowing, that documentary. Well, I think it's it's really good when documentaries come out like
1: that because it makes you question that concept of privilege again. And I think that when people are brave enough to be honest about that, then they can put a mirror up to some other people who might not have seen their own experience reflected at them, especially not from somebody who's as rich and famous as Paris Hilton. So I I really admire when people can do that in a tasteful and sensitive
0: way. Mm, it definitely was. It was a very well produced documentary. It was really interesting. Yeah. And then my final podcast recommendation um, is called Into the Grey Zone, which is fascinating. It starts with an episode about Sergei Skripal and the sort of poisoning of him and his daughter. And then it sort of zooms out into the bigger world view of what the sorts of things that are going on that we have no idea about. A lot of people commenting on uh, what actually happens with big tech infiltrating us, how that can lead to other countries jeopardising our security, jeopardising our elections, and why things like Skripal events happen and those things that trickle out into the mainstream media, but actually what the story is behind it.
1: Great. I've also spent a lot of January watching the entirety of Virgin River. Have you seen that yet? Not yet. So don't ruin it. (laughs) I watched the last episode last night and it's just... Why do they do that? Why do they leave things on cliffhangers? I mean, you know that then it's going to have us next season. So that's great. And I'm excited and looking forward to that, but also it's going to be such a long wait. Why? I almost wish that I had stopped it two minutes before the end because they did this with every single episode of Virgin River. And that was basically my technique for stopping myself from keeping on watching it. It was like, I would get two minutes and I'd be like, right, end,
0: time to go to bed. <laughs> This is my technique for every book I read and pretty much every series. Okay. So this is the Georgia Parkin method and it works. Okay. It means you're not heartbroken when these things leave you. Okay. (laughs) Um, and what I will say following on from our last episode is those series have saved me throughout January. Okay. And no judgment for anyone watching them, anyone watching two episodes a day, anyone watching them in the middle of the day. You need to do what you need to do to get through January. But I've been told on good authority that Lupin and Serpent are the two that I am going to watch next. Lupin, I'm going to start tonight.
1: I've heard very good things about Lupin. Um, Is it in French? I don't know. But we will tell you next episode. (laughs) (laughs) Just quickly on Virgin River, for anybody who hasn't seen it, first of all, do not be put off by the name. Second of all, we'll give you an appreciation for the medical community and the profession, which I think is also critical right now. So I really liked that element of it because it's around a nurse practitioner. And then I thought it was such an interesting examination of guilt, grief, community, chosen family. And it really went in deep. And you know what I also loved about this? is that in some, especially kind of like fast paced American reality TV show things like 90210 style, which I've been also watching, huge dramatic things will happen. And then they leave it behind and then they'll have it kind of flare up, but maybe in the next season. And it's not realistic because when these huge things happen, they don't go away. Like they will surface up and flare up all the time. And there'll be little things that remind you of that person you've lost or that difficult thing that happened and I thought that they did that so well that they didn't leave things too quickly and they kept it going and it just it got richer and richer as you went through
0: very very good series the first figure of today's episode is Joe Biden this is his third presidential run he ran um, in 1997 he ran in 2008 and he's run this time And this time last year, I had made a bet with some friends that it would be Joe Biden. And obviously at the time there was Bloomberg and Pete Buttigieg and Warren and all of these sort of, and Harris, to be fair, was running. And I just thought, I was like, no, people like Joe Biden, they're attached to him. And the reason is because he's been in the Senate for since 1973. And he has this warmth about him that people feel a massive affinity to. And I think that comes from the intense loss that he's experienced in his life. His wife and one-year-old daughter died in a car crash that seriously injured his other two sons, Beau and Hunter. I think it was a week before Christmas and he was just about to be sworn into the Senate and had to take, I think, a lot of convincing from other family members and colleagues to keep going. But he did. And he didn't move to Washington, D.C., crucially. I think so many people put this as part of his story in that he came home for dinner every night and knew everyone on the Amtrak service, every conductor, every ticket collector by name, um, because he commuted every single day. And he said in interviews before that essentially how he channeled his grief was to use it in public service. And it just that really moved me. I remember hearing that story a couple of years ago and just thinking, how on earth does someone like that get up every day? I guess that purpose of serving the American people, the purpose of having two sons who need him. And then really tragically in 2015, that the second son of those two boys dies of glioblastoma, Beau Biden, who worked with Kamala Harris in the California Legislative office, who served in the US military. And that actually prevented Biden from running in the presidential race against Trump, which is what he had planned on doing. I think that intense grief is why he is such an empathetic person. And when you hear interviews with his grandchildren, they say, you know, he calls us every single day. And if we don't pick up, he sends a text and i and when i hear that i i hear two things i hear one you know an incredibly close family and very proud grandfather and then the other i hear scared of loss but i think everyone can feel that warmth from him
1: yeah i agree and i get the sense that he's always been a happy go lucky empathetic, compassionate person. I think the way that he talks about his own grandparents and his own mother and father, and he references them constantly and is always passing on their advice to him, to other people, which I absolutely love. And I think that the grief and the loss has intensified and heightened what was already there and then brought even more humanity, compassion into his life because of, the way that he was supported clearly by his own family. And then mm-hmm. just what it's taught him, you know, that you can't take anything for granted. And it it really brings into focus what matters, I think, when something like that, such a huge tragedy times two happens. And I think that you also get this sense that he is a very humble person. And what I absolutely love in that um, Meghan McCain video that you sent me, thank you so much. So this we'll is link when, it
0: because you want to watch it. It's very very good. It really is, and it's
1: when Meghan McCain has recently found out that her dad John, who was a very good friend of Joe Biden's, um, has been diagnosed with the same condition that Beau died of. And what? Well, firstly, what I love is that Joe Biden goes over to her as soon as she is upset. He goes over. He sits in the seat next to her, which I don't think he was supposed to do, and he just holds her hand. And he keeps holding her hand throughout the entire interview. And it just even that just really, really moved me because this is what we need in our world leaders, regardless of what anything else. Like we just need them to be there, listening, supportive of people. and And he just talks about the the legacy of Bo and how he he was parented by them in a way. Like he found that, by the time they were 13, 14, Hunter and Bo, that he was learning so much from them and he was so in awe. And I love parents who can recognize that and say that and talk about it because so often adults have this like, I'm better, I'm right, and you don't know anything. And he doesn't do that at all. Like He's so open and willing to learn from other people and then carry on. So just talking about that video as a whole, I think what it really sums up, and it relates to his inauguration speech as well, is where his values come from, who he is as a person, what matters to him. And for me, this matters so much, especially right now, because we've had such a time of just no values at all and like terrible representation of what that person stands for, who will openly criticize someone who's disabled and say disgusting things like grab and buy the pussy. Like it's just so... Mm disgusting and like stomach churning and then I think that there's this like deficit that he's trying to make up for and that's why he's really running on person like not personality and values and and it's like a sermon-like quality of when he talks much more than a politician who's talking about policies and I always remember when Trump was elected and Meryl Streep did an amazing speech at I think it was the Oscars or the Golden Globes I can't remember which one it was and she talks about how whoever that is at the top so to speak their values trickle down because they tell people what is okay to do so when you have somebody who has that much misogyny and that much disrespect for people with disabilities openly talking about it that tells everybody else that that's okay and so that is what I am so relieved is changing with this election and inauguration and he's certainly not perfect like I'm not saying that whatsoever but the fact that he talks about the soul of the country he talks about love courage and hope and compassion I feel very lifted in this leader.
0: I completely agree with you that we need in someone in that office of the United States president someone who is going to be dignified and you almost want just like a very respectful, respectable headmaster who you just know is going to say the right thing at the right time. Um, yeah. But then the problem with that, I guess, is they can say the right thing and they can they can be as, as peaceful as they like. But then if there are policies that people disagree with, then that's an issue. You know, Obama is one of the best orators of all time. But, you know, we... There was many, many parts of his foreign policy that people disagreed with. I remember at university, there was a petition going around when the, when the US were bombing Syria and hundreds of thousands of um, innocent people were dying. You know, that was, that was an Obama legislation. We don't criticize Obama for that sort of thing in the same way that we scrutinize Trump for absolutely everything that he does. So I think there's definitely a double standard there. So I'm, I'm keeping that as a caveat because I definitely think it's good to be presidential, but it's not. Um, mm. But it is a relief to, to feel like we've got someone who's just kind of. <laughs> yes. And not so that, scary.
1: <laughs> that actually brings me to one of my favourite Maya Angelou quotes, which is people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. Mm. And this is the key difference. Like, I know that his policies, there are lots of things and who knows how much he'll be able to change. But I think even just by standing up there and talking about unity, lots of people have been very critical of this and think, you know, you're just being a fool because have you not like open your eyes, like look at what the world is like. But I, I'm i with him. Like, I believe in it. And I think that his belief is very... Um, it's, I don't want to use the word infectious because it's not a very mm. nice word, but you know what I mean?
0: No, I absolutely. I absolutely agree. I think, I think the bit that had me was when he appealed to the people who were critical of him and said, give me a chance, and then if you still disagree, that's okay. I can see the criticism of expecting unity, given this year in particular, has driven that unity so far apart. And I do actually feel like Joe Biden is, of the Democratic Party, someone who... Is actually incredibly measured. I don't feel like he's an extremist on in any kind of issue. But what this year I think brought to the surface was why Trump was so popular. And I'm I'm aware I'm quoting Sam Harris here, which is, you know, we have a huge movement about saying the right thing, being the right thing. I guess the term is quite like extreme wokeism. From cancel culture, on the flip side, absolutely. And Trump was stood there and said, "Hey, no, absolutely not. We, I will not disavow anyone who wants to question anything because America is about freedom of speech, and we should be able to ask questions, and we should be able to say what we want and do what we want." And that is how he appealed to that subsect of the population, and that's why he will continue to have a following because the more that we have big tech controlling what we can or can't say the more that trump will be given oxygen um because what he represents is almost the anti that yeah um biden's got an interesting task here of, of managing that and then managing people in his party who want him to be far more um extreme uh left because yeah. he's going to be he's going to have to really contend with that
1: yeah on the banning thing, let's talk about that a little bit. It was making me think of Harry Potter and the Quibbler.
0: <laughs> Do you remember what happened
1: with this? And actually I'm just going to explain because hopefully everyone listening is a big Harry Potter fan and knows exactly what I'm talking about, but just in case you don't. The Quibbler um which was the magazine run by the father of Luna Lovegood <laughs> ran a long article with Harry Potter telling his side of the story, written by Rita Skeeter. And Professor Umbridge tries to ban the quibbler. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, she she essentially ensures that every single person in the school has a copy and has read the article, because there is this intrigue around things that are forbidden. And so I think that it's really interesting to talk about the social media platforms and their approach to Trump and banning him because that is drawing attention to it in a huge, huge way. So that is kind of counterintuitive. But then at the same time, my, I don't know how you feel about this, but my feeling is if anybody is going to be banned on any platform and you have a policy that some people cannot be on it, everyone needs to be treated equally with regards to that policy because ultimately it is their platform it's their decision so either you have to have no one can be banned or you have to apply the same rules to whoever regardless of who they are and that was my big stupid annoying thing it was like why do we have different rules for world leaders like why is he able to get away with all of this whereas if he was anybody else they would have banned him a very very long time ago
0: what would thoughts? they? I don't think, I don't know if they would, because I don't think things that he said on Twitter before this, they were able to link directly to an act of violence. I completely agree with you that we need to have the same standards for everybody, because you're right, it's their decision. And we need to have the same standards for people who want to attack the police, who want to kill cops or whatever it is that there's there's huge amounts of violence on that side of things as well Mm -hmm. which is completely unacceptable and Um, the most thickening amount of
1: systemic racism
0: this is just it's so
1: awful to look mm -hmm. at the comparisons of like black lives matter protests you know like why are we using this the language is just awful it's like Mm -hmm. we've got these people we have loads of white people go to the Capitol, and it's you know mob and it's protesters but then change the the skin tone, the background, and they'd be described as terrorists. And it's just so wrong. And we need to look very, very critically at how things are reported and the lens through which people are looking at things. Mm-hmm.
0: It's disgusting. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and it meant that, I guess that, <sighs> I, I don't know what's going to happen in terms of the future of Twitter and Instagram in, in regards to Trump. My personal opinion is it makes me feel very, very uncomfortable that he's been banned for life. He can come up in another way um, and he will come up in another way. And all you're doing is uh, (laughs) firing up (laughs) the beast, as it were. I don't even want to refer to Trump as that, but, but that's what they're doing. They're literally giving him so much. I mean, if he wanted to rerun in four years time, so if he doesn't get put in jail, which he probably should go. He's going to use that in his campaign. He's going to say, literally, look at all these left-wing authoritarian big tech. They all tried to ban me. They're all trying to do this. They're going to come for you next. Ideal. So I would say to the CEO of Twitter, really, you need to think about that. If you want Trump to go away, I don't think that's the answer.
1: Can I just pick up on your point of um, beast and monster? Because um, yeah. An episode that I really want yeah. everybody... Yeah, that's why I stopped myself.
0: Because Brene Brown um, was like, I'm not going to refer to Trump as a, a Cheeto and chief or whatever it was.
1: Yeah, this is an episode by Brene Brown on Unlocking Us. And it's around accountability and dehumanization. And it is absolutely fascinating mm-hmm. and critical and fundamental to understand of why we cannot fight like with like. If we have people like Trump up there Mm -hmm. describing women as dogs and using all sorts of horrible names for people, we then can't come back and describe him as a pig or a beast or a monster. Calling people names, it's then, it's basically, and it's the same with the authoritarian thing. If we're scared of something being controlling and authoritarian, we then can't cancel out the other people. I don't know if I'm explaining this Right. But Ben Shapiro, another podcast bringing uh, on, is talking about this and how we have almost silently, we've got people who are extreme left cancelling people who are using their freedom of speech. And I obviously would love everybody to be kind, but we can't have like some rules for some people and some rules for other people. And this is the huge problem that we've got all of this like people are terrified of what they're saying the wrong thing because they could be quote unquote cancelled and so we need to stop shaming people for saying something or for making a mistake or for having an opinion that they don't like like that's yeah you need to accept that and and basically Brené distinguishes between shaming somebody and holding someone accountable and it's so key. And I just hadn't really thought about it properly in my head. But it's the difference of saying to Trump, you're a bad person. That's shaming him. And you did a bad thing. That's holding him accountable. That's making it very simplistic. She does a much better job than me th- of explaining it. But yeah.
0: No, that is a perfect. And it, But shaming people is probably one of the biggest factors in him of being elected, because all those people that are shamed for their views, for their opinions, and I used to do this myself, so I, I'm not at all judging people for doing this, but it makes my blood boil when people are like, oh, these Republican people in middle America all vote for Trump because of one thing. It's like, no, we cannot assume and make blanket statements about undereducated, working class white people. How derogatory is that? That's the same as like saying all black people do do this or all Latino people do this. And only the elite are kind of looked at as having nuanced views. Everyone has nuanced views. And Trump got more votes from the um, ethnic minority population than he did last time. And actually Joe Biden got far more, again, uh, white male votes from backgrounds that are less privileged so we can't actually make those blanket statements and it kind of makes me it just kind of annoys me when we do because it's Mm. that dehumanizing I think and blanket statement and that sort of shame like oh white men you know that's going to cause all that's going to do is cause white men to be even more defensive and less unified than to the rest of the population Um, or very dangerously unified against everybody else, which is exactly 100%. what we want to
1: avoid. The Daily had a great episode on, uh, well, they have many great episodes on the whole covering of the Capitol and inauguration. But their big question on his inauguration speech was, what is he talking about with unity? Is he talking about unity against people who are domestic terrorists, etc., Or is he talking about unity with everyone? And I think it's going to be interesting to see. I don't think we know the answer yet. I think that he's um, also sort of working that out himself to a certain extent. But really, really interesting to see how that plays out. And it was a great discussion,
0: really good breakdown of his entire speech. I'd really recommend it. We'll we'll link it. I did love that episode as well. I also wanted to run some fun facts past you about inaugurations. So the first inauguration took place in 1789, which was George Washington. And inaugurations, I guess, have evolved over the years. So the first one took place in New York, which was the country's capital at the time. Um, The next one took place in Philadelphia, um, because that was the country's capital. So I believe the first presidential inauguration that happened in Washington, D.C. was in 1801. That one was quite a contentious inauguration because the Federalists were passing power over to the Democrats um, and the Federalists were sort of an earlier version of the Republican Party. Similarly here, how we had liberals, Whigs, didn't have Tory and Labour, actually, until a lot more recently. And it's the first time in 152 years that a sitting president has not attended the inauguration of the president-elect. The last time is that Thomas Jefferson in 1869 didn't turn up to his inauguration after a very bitter election campaign so there is precedent for this luckily in the previous pandemic flu pandemic happened in between inauguration so it didn't actually affect the inauguration ceremony whereas of course for this year you could see everyone in masks Mm. there was no inaugural parade I don't think there was an inaugural ball I think there was sort of celebrations later on but it was much more scaled back um
1: it was absolutely mind blowing, though. Whoever put together that inauguration lineup, I'd be really interested actually to know who chose who to do the various different songs, poems, readings. I think that I know the answer for Amanda Jorman, who has taken the world by storm. What an amazing 22 year old woman. Please please keep writing and inspiring the entire world. I yeah. love her so much. She was recommended mm-hmm. by Dr. Jill Biden, who first saw her perform at the Library of Congress. And she was also wearing the similar s- shade of yellow. And so that coat that she wore by Prada, which is, she chose Prada because of its outspoken feminist belief, um, was a nod to Jill biden another fun fact is that when maya angelou spoke at the inauguration of bill clinton oprah winfrey bought her a coat and jewelry to wear for that reading Mm -hmm. and so when oprah winfrey who's a big fan of amanda's found out that she was going to be the person reading the poem and writing the poem as well. She wanted to continue the tradition. And so she bought her a Chanel coat, gold hoop earrings by Nikos Cooley and an of rare origin ring. And on the day she wore, I think the earring in the ring and another ring, or it might've been the same one was a caged bird, which is to symbolize, I know why the caged bird sings by Maya Angelou, which I'm currently reading and is very heavy, but incredibly beautifully written. I love that
0: Dr. Biden chose Amanda to make, to do that reading because she is obviously an educator. Uh, Dr. Biden has been a teacher and professor for many, many years, and she knows the power of young people, and I think that having that influence is just key.
1: Um, yeah. And One Lady more-
0: Gaga was also there to sing the anthem, and that was just stunning.
1: It was. One more fun fact. So the poem was called The Hill We Climb. And she was about halfway through writing it when the capital was stormed. And then she finished the poem on that night. That is a good fun fact. Gosh. She's also the first National
0: Youth Poet Laureate. That is fantastic. Wow, it was so lovely to have her introduced to the world. It was. Um, well, mm. I mean, I
1: think lots of people have known about her for a very long time, but certainly living in the UK, I hadn't heard of her before. Um, mm. And I'm just so grateful that they chose her and that she... She was just such a stunning performance on every level. Mm. I just couldn't believe her strength and eloquence and everything. It was just amazing, especially for
0: someone who's that young. Definitely. Um, I also very much enjoyed watching, obviously, Kamala Harris being sworn in um, by uh, Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sonomayor, who is the first Supreme Court Justice of an ethnic minority background. I was just so overwhelmed by watching that, and I still will be always. And it was actually really funny to see all these people in one place. I don't know if you had this, show but you, do you remember they panned to Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, obviously Sonia Sonamayor, Obamas, Clintons, uh, Elizabeth Warren, um, literally all these people all in one one place. And you think, gosh, these, these people have been caricatures for the last four years. It's you know, like we've been through a journey the character- with all of them. You
1: know, when the week does the roundup, yeah. And it's like all of the people of the year and they're on the cover you've got all the characters. It was literally yeah. like that, but in yeah. real life.
0: <laughs> totally. So totally. It was so bizarre. And then watching them kind of hug each other and I was like, oh my God, it's like COVID. But I'm assuming these people have been tested to the inch of their lives, I'm sure. Then I thought, gosh, there's definitely gonna be a COVID outbreak. Come on. I mean, everyone is hugging right now.
1: I know. Um, it's like a bit, you know, the security must have been absolutely on the highest level possible. And it also imagine. makes me think of um, you know, in Johnny English where they have that funeral of like the agent one and then there's a bomb that goes off and like everyone dies and then it's just johnny english left can you imagine we'd have like no one we just have trump who's like on his own little plane with melania (laughs) it would just be awful but fine you know it's okay we've got through that it hasn't turned into a johnny english movie so that's great
0: but do you know that I know this from watching Designated Survivor on Netflix? That actually, what they will have is a designated survivor who is not there, who is watching from home, and they have that every time the uh, Capitol and Congress, so whether it's State of the Union, inauguration, they have someone who is ready to be president if that happens, and that's what that show Designated Survivor is about. It's very, very interesting. That's so
1: interesting. Okay, before we move on, I'm aware that this has been quite a long section, but there is a lot to say. I would love to summarize what stood out for me in an episode of Ben Shapiro that you sent me. And part of the reason that I'd like to do this is because it was very, very interesting content, absolutely fascinating, very glad that I listened to it. However the delivery of his podcast, he speaks so fast. And then there are these weird adverts that are kind of inserted. There's no break, there's no music. He just goes straight from making a kind of really profound point about liberals and the core left to recommending a stamp website. It's really, really weird. Um, But basically what I found very, very insightful was the distinction between the liberals who have a liberal point of view and who would generally be democratic, and then the extreme left, who, and this is where politics becomes like a horseshoe, and that actually the extreme right and the extreme left, and not even that extreme, are essentially as bad as each other. And he highlighted that in a very, very interesting way. And then he went on to talk about the danger of conflation and that the 5,000-odd people who stormed the Capitol are not the same as the 74 million people who voted for Trump. Like, we cannot put everybody into the same box. Like, that's not fair, and it's just flattening. It's just wrong to do that. But we see it all the time, and we see it in the UK with Brexit. Mm-hmm. So- if and Brexit and Trump are put into the same sentence like why they're te- they're completely different like i know that for some people the same values drive them to vote for Brexit and to vote for Trump but it's some people it's not everybody and we have nuance and this is what is missing so there's my little um summary was there anything else that he Oh, he also broke down the way that media had reported things. Like some people have said that this is the first non-peaceful transfer of power. But actually, when you look at it, Biden came in, Trump left. It was, you know, it's happened. You know, the, the mob wasn't going to change that, not happening. Yeah. It was scary and horrible and awful. But realistically, it wasn't like he talks about, you know, the system was breaking down. And it's not like we had you know mm-hmm. the senate and the congress members all like up and like it just no like you just mm. let's get some perspective let's get some stoicism actually bringing yeah. it back to that and look yeah. at what is actually going on and stop yeah. completely um what's the word like
0: it's 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 an overdramatization it's yes. a, it's a, it's a, it's feeding this need to want the news cycle and to fill up the news cycle and to keep giving people this sort of drama but Shah, you obviously you definitely you couldn't have said it better when talking about looking at stoicism and let's call a spade a spade, what Ben Shapiro said was the mob was not going to change the Electoral College confirming the vote. No one was going to, Trump was never going to stay in the White House and not leave. There was a peaceful transfer of power and it's happened. And Mm -hmm. the system is fine. And it's the sort of hyperbolic kind of explosion of the news cycle and the media and the sort of traditional left media that... Love to do this, love to do this. If yeah. a if a Democrat candidate had questioned the vote like Trump had, there would have been not nearly as much of vitriol yeah. because that's their that's what their perspective, that's what they're coming from. And like what you said about blanket statements about Trump, Brexit, it's the same as going back to what we're talking about in terms of, oh, all black people vote this way. all white working class people vote this way. All people who voted for brexit are bigots or all people who vote for Trump are this. That, that is what elects Trump. That yeah. thinking.
1: Yeah. Do we need to talk about anything else to do with Joe Biden
0: before we round off? One of the, my favourite things about Joe Biden is um, a clip that I saw with his granddaughters. Really recommend it. And in that clip, they point out how much he is obsessed with ice cream. And then they show different shots of him with different in different ice cream shops in different states on his campaign trail. And again, that f- cemented uh, my pick. I love that. That's brilliant.
1: The second figure that we're going to talk about today is that in the Netflix series Bridgerton, 7,500 pieces of costume were used, all completely unique, made by a team of 238 people led by Ellen Mironik. Apologies if I've said her name wrong. She has a wealth of experience. She's 71 years old and she is known for her work on The Greatest Showman and many others. She's won a whole load of awards in her lifetime for her incredible costumes. And then then just breaking down one more fun fact is that Phoebe Diverner, who plays the main character of Daphne, had 104 dresses in eight episodes. It's like she's basically in a new dress every single scene. It's extraordinary and so luxurious this whole program i absolutely loved it it was so entertaining
0: i also found out that she made those pieces in 5 months which is a really short amount of time yeah um, each one was bespoke and i was watching a few videos on the different sort of characters and the bridgerton family it's very sort of muted and pastels and obviously the featheringtons it's extremely bright and in your face And I guess whenever we talk about costumes, I always just focus on the female costumes. I never really look at the. To be honest, the men could literally be wearing the same thing and I wouldn't know. And um, But I did take time to look look back at the Duke's outfits and Antony's outfits. And it's just beautiful. The jackets and just that whole era was very interesting. There was a lot of people talked about the Regency period as a sort of mini-Renaissance, and there was a lot that was going on at the time in terms of fine art um, and architecture. And there was a lot, a lot of social and political change. Um, this was just on the eve of the abolition of slavery, which came in under William IV. And sort of interesting thinking about that in the context of what you were watching, because it's so entertaining. and Obviously, this is a fictional retelling and it's incredibly funny and witty but it was happening at a time of extreme repression and you know they're making light of that in terms of especially women and how women are treated because the tv series sort of focuses on the coming out season um, I think of 1813. For me the way that
1: I see it is it's a parallel fantasy universe where there are lots of similarities, but there are also some very key differences. One of which is that Queen Charlotte is a person of color and she has been chosen as the queen by King George. And then essentially the ripple effect of that marriage has meant that there are lots and lots and lots of people of color who are dukes and duchesses. And it's just really refreshing. And I absolutely loved that they made a nod to that that was subtle and not overplayed, but also key in just understanding this world a little bit better. And what it has opened up is this, everyone is invited atmosphere. And and also just amazing new actors that I've never seen before, both, you know, of all different backgrounds and all from all walks of life, who I just can't wait to see more of them and see where they go with their careers because the acting was just
0: phenomenal in this whole series. I loved that, um, that the cast, you notice straight away, is um, made up pre equally of people who are white and people of colour. You're not used to seeing people of colour in that context. All period dramas are all, they're so, so white. And so I love that because it just shows that it firstly can be done, secondly doesn't matter at all, and thirdly is kind of like you said, this parallel universe of, oh, imagine if that had happened... Yeah, what would be the impact? In that time, exactly. Um, The thing, though, that I didn't understand, which is a slight spoiler, so skip ahead now if you haven't um, watched it, I think it would have been more impactful if they hadn't mentioned it at all because they didn't dive deep enough because there's one reference to it, one, by the Duke uh, and the Duke's father, and he says, we have been given the dukedom of Hastings by the Queen who is chosen of love and obviously the message is love tr- kind of trumps all but they didn't really explore that any further and it's extremely unrealistic to I guess assume that within the 20 years that Queen Charlotte's been on the throne that suddenly everyone's equal.
1: I don't think that they were suggesting that everyone's equal but I think that I I liked that they only gave the one nod to it because it's just it answered a question in your head and then mm-hmm. it was like, okay, great. Let's just get on with watching the show and see what everyone, how everyone's going to play out and who's going to hook up with who and all the scandal. And I think Netflix have done an incredible job and well done to Shonda Rhimes, who was the producer for this. Very, very exciting to see where this continues to go. And hopefully there's going to be like eight series in total, I think. The way that people are describing it is... Jane Austen, Pride and Prejudice, or Emma, I would say, because it's a lot of it is about matchmaking, um, meets Gossip
0: Girl, narrated by Julie Andrews. You're reminded of how far we have come. And actually, if you were... I guess, yes, if you're a woman, you're absolutely screwed. You have no capacity for any choice. Or if you were poor, also completely screwed. And you see kind of scenes of those kind of people that are on the streets and in Victoria. It's very like similar to Victorian England in that respect, the wealth divide is huge. George III was a very famous king because he had bipolar and schizophrenia. Obviously he was not diagnosed then. Um, he was just known as mad. which is why the Regency era is called the Regency era because he was incapable of being king. And Prince George, who was later going to become George IV, was ruling in his father's place for about 16 years. Oh, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's what regent is. And one more fun fact I just can't help but put in. Okay, so you know the, so the regency era we're talking about was officially 1811 to 1820, at which point George III and Queen Charlotte's son, George IV, comes to the throne. But George III and Queen Charlotte had many children, but I think five survived And their fourth son, Prince Edward, Duke of Kent, was the father of Queen Victoria.
1: Ah! There we go. The third figure today is a painting by John Henry Lorimer, who was my great, great uncle and who is the artist that I am currently curating an exhibition for, the first one that he will ever have had. Um, the painting is called Grandmother's Birthday and it was painted in 1894 uh, and it was the first painting to be bought by the French government that was done by a Scottish artist.
0: I didn't realise that. Yeah, yeah.
1: So um, it's currently in the Musée d'Orsay and well, I feel it sums up a lot of the key themes that I'm going to be exploring in the exhibition, but also because this is the painting that I would love more than anything to raise enough money to have it in the actual exhibition, because with Brexit and it being in the Musée d'Orsay, you have to have somebody come with the painting to Edinburgh, which is where the exhibition will be, and back. So it becomes very, very expensive. And we have some funds raised, but this is partly why we're doing this crowdfunding campaign, which we will link for anybody who is feeling generous, even if you can give Five pounds, like everything is just very, very helpful and much, much appreciated. But this painting hasn't really been out on display to the public for a very, very long time. So it was in the Luxembourg Gallery. But since then, I mean, the Musée also has thousands and thousands and thousands of paintings. But apparently, only 5% of what galleries and museums own is on display. So a huge portion is in storage and this is going to be an amazing opportunity to have some of the paintings that people never get to see of his on display. And I would love if one of them could be grandmother's birthday.
0: I would love that too. I would love to see it. You found out some pretty interesting things. I was going to ask you this about curating um, an exhibition and I'm I'm sure we'll save a lot of that kind of more detail for when we do our event next in the next couple of weeks. But other than that weird thing that you have to have a person come with you, what else has been m- the most challenging? Good question. I mean, raising funds
1: is, is a huge one and how expensive certain things can be. Mm. Something that I found challenging, just access to information, which again is made more difficult by the pandemic because John Henry Lorimer, he who's fairly well known in his day, He did a lot of incredible portraits of very well-known businessmen, thinkers, leaders. He painted the novelist Charlotte P. Young, who's been compared to Jane Austen. He painted the feminist campaigner Sally Mare, who we've got that painting. That will be in the exhibition, which is really exciting. I found some paintings I never thought I'd be able to find. And that's been the most exciting thing. What's tricky is sometimes finding out or confirming certain pieces of information, because there are lots of family letters, many of which I've been able to go through, which has been such a joy. But then there's certain things where even down to the minute detail, there's a word that's really difficult to read and I can't read it. And then I can't tell, you know, I can't bring anybody over. And I sometimes can take a photograph of it, but sometimes I'm not allowed to. So that's quite tricky. And then um, different dates on stuff. Sometimes you don't know. John Henry was one of six and he his sisters mattered a huge amount to him and they feature in the paintings a lot. We don't know when... Two of the sisters died. It's really bizarre. Like, why that's mm. such a sort of commonplace piece of knowledge that you take for granted when you're looking at historical figures. But we I don't have anything. So if they died in Scotland, they would hopefully be on some kind of register, but then they might not have been because Hannah Lorimer was married to a man called Sir Everard Infern. He was the governor of Fiji. And so she lived in Fiji and in what was called Ceylon, it's now called Sri Lanka. She met him in British Guyana, which is where the husband um, of Alice was governor. They could have died somewhere not in Scotland. So I just, I've got no idea. We'll see. Wait.
0: (laughs) Gosh, how interesting. With significance to this painting in particular, why did you choose that for this episode? So
1: the way that the exhibition is structured, um, I kind of see it like a pyramid that at the bottom and the first room we have light. And for me, everything was about light. So that's the first one. Then we go a bit narrower and it's about identity. So we look at the way that he fits into Scottish art history the influence of certain teachers including his sister Hannah what Edinburgh meant to him where his parents you know came from and the key thing on that is that they they stumbled across this castle called Kelly Castle which is very near where I live and they arranged for a lease to be taken out and they restored this castle and it is a really really beautiful very special place and it's not over the top. And it's very homely. And they incorporated a lot of local craftsmen, supported a lot of the local people. And it really inspired a lot of the children, including John Henry. But most importantly, Robert Lorimer, who was my great grandfather, who went on to become a very um, well-known architect. So that's the second theme of identity. Then we have um, family. That was absolutely key for John Henry. And he painted a lot of his family members. Um, His early portraits were all of them really. And then in later life, he would use moments from his sister's life. We then have femininity. So then again, focusing on his sisters and this kind of empathetic, compassionate, humble quality of his paintings that he was, I think he was a very sensitive and very shy man. He was absolutely terrible at self publicity, which is partly why he never had an exhibition during his lifetime. There was a, a kind of red tape, annoying series of events, which meant that he was offered the Légion d'honneur by the French government, which is a huge, huge honour for anybody. But because of certain regulations, the British government did not allow him to accept this. And part of the reason of that is because the French government had cited grandmother's birthday, bought in 1900, I think, Um which meant that it was too too much time had passed between the buying of the painting and the offering of the Légion d'honneur. But I think uh, it's really sad because he didn't, that is the sort of thing that he would have been very proud to have held. And he would have really appreciated being recognized rather than having to go out for something. Like that wasn't in his nature. So that was also why I thought we could talk about this painting because the Légion d'honneur um, fiasco comes into, <laughs> into it. And then the final theme is home. And so in this final room, which is where I hope this painting will be, that brings together all five themes. And it's a collection of my favorite of his paintings. They're all set at Kelly. They, almost all of them are centered around women, children and animals and all have beautiful light. He really liked to challenge himself with the light. And you can see that in this painting Grandmother's Birthday because we've got moonlight flowing through the window. And at the same time, we've got the lamps on the table. So it's very, very difficult to get that quality correct, but he absolutely perfects it here. And I love Mm -hmm. all the children sitting around the table. I also love that there is one of the chairs. I don't know if you've noticed this, you may recognise one of the chairs.
0: Yes, the one at the end.
1: <laughs> yeah, so so my uh, my great grandfather Robert, he was a furniture designer as well as an architect, and he designed chairs. And we've got the original chair that is in the painting, and that is the chair that I'm literally wow. sitting on. Was <laughs> it's based on that?
0: Wow. Oh my gosh!
1: And that was That's made amazing. by. It was made by Willie Wheeler in a little village called Ancrook, which is literally down the road. Uncroch, of yeah. Course. And so John Henry's father, Professor James Lorimer, was the one who encouraged to um, pursue his furniture and commissioned lots of work. So they would—he was the one who made all these amazing chairs uh, that were designed by Robert. Um, so it's just—it's just a gorgeous, gorgeous painting, and. It is. The final thing to um, draw attention to is that there is a woman in the corner who's holding a baby and Mm. her name is Joanna Herbert. And she was the woman who helped to raise all six of his nieces and nephews belonging to Alice and her husband, David Chalmers, who is the governor of British Guyana. Joanna Herbert was from British Guyana. She was born into slavery. So her mother was a slave. Her father was a white man, which we don't know the name of. It was one of those horrible things that you hear of where you have illegitimate children who are left with absolutely no protection at all for the mother or for the child. And she was chosen by Alice to become her nurse and nanny for these children Mm -hmm. and was absolutely adored by each and every one of the family members. And I'd actually love to read out a quote that I found from Esther Chalmers, who was the sixth child, and who wrote a lot about her um, in her autobiography. She came over to Scotland quite a lot, Joanna Herbert, with the family, and she died in Scotland. And then John Henry organised her funeral, which he persuaded Alice not to come to, I think because she was just so upset at the, the passing of this great friend and support. She just sounds like such a wonderful person. So this is very much summed up in this quote. One of the blessed, Joanna Herbert, our dearly loved Nana was a magnet for friendship above and below stairs alike. On her many Atlantic crossings, the stewards were her friends before ever the ship weighed anchor, their pantries hers for the needs of the current baby. Nor did the anguish of seasickness ever make her neglect her charges.
0: It's always so lovely to hear about the history and the stories behind the paintings because what a painting can do is have this amazing ability to... To portray history, uh, beauty in nature, people and characters, and sum it up all in one. And there's just, you, there's just so much that you can talk about and analyse within just one picture. And what I love about this painting in particular is just that feeling of kind of lovely chaos when you've got loads of siblings and family members um, and children around the table, which is always kind of something that I definitely long for. I know that you share the same sentiment, <laughs> yeah. um, and one day when our children are very young, I'm sure that, that chaos will be around a Christmas table um, in some, in some form. Yeah, um, bring it on. <laughs> absolutely. Let's try and have nine children between us. Okay. <laughs> Maybe we can uh, take our own version of that photo. <laughs> so, yeah. And I think it just, it creates a warmth. Um, when you're looking that at it, in combination yeah. with how Healy's portrayed that light, which is beautiful. Mm.
1: No, I, I completely agree. And I think that art for me is all about storytelling. And that is exactly mm. what I want to do throughout this entire exhibition. So just to give you a little bit more information about it, it opens on the 6th of November this year at the City Art Centre in Edinburgh. And it's called Reflections, the Light and Life of John Henry Lorimer. And if you'd like to find out a little bit more about it, Georgia and I are going to be doing an online virtual tour and we'll be taking questions from the audience. Georgia will be adding her own questions um, and just walking you through the vision for the, the exhibition. And the tickets are available now. They cost £10 and all of that money goes towards the crowdfunding campaign to make the exhibition as big and bold and beautiful as it can be.
0: oh yes thank you for listening to this month's episode of the figure podcast as always you can find us on instagram at figure podcast um which will include all of the images that support today's episode remember to check out the show notes for all of our recommendations because there have been quite a few and please sign up for the um, the virtual tour around the John Henry Lorimer exhibition that will be taking place on the 4th of February. We'll leave that information below.
1: There is also a debate mate event coming up, which might be of interest to some of you, which is around mandatory vaccinations and, and looking at
0: the implications of that that is coming up on Thursday. Essentially, we wanted to have the debate that no one is having Um, at the moment, in a very kind of thoughtful way. We have some incredible doctors and scientists and leaders in the pharmaceutical industry. We don't necessarily want to come down on an either or, but we want to put the topic out there and really explore what the implications of this vaccine and vaccinations will have going forward in our life, because never before have vaccinations been so on the top of everyone's agenda.
1: Sounds really, really interesting. So all of the links will be in the show notes. And just thank you so much for listening. And we hope that some of you we might get to meet on this event. It'll be on Zoom. All the details will be on our Eventbrite page.